0: Accustomed to remain standing for the reading of Scripture uh, before the preaching of the Word, and so I'd ask that you remain standing as you're able. Our morning scripture reading is found in the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 19, verses 1 through 27. Gospel according to Saint Luke, beginning in chapter 19 and verse 1. Let us hear and attend to the Word of God. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now, behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector. And he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of his, the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when he saw it, or when they saw it, They all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusations, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save. That which was lost. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant because you were faithful over very little, uh, have, uh, have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, you also be over five cities. Then another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept, put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that it may uh, 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 that at my coming it might have collected? I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, "Take the miner from him and give it to him who has ten minas." But they said to him, "Master, he has ten minas." For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. We'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. We have taken a hiatus from the Gospel of St. Mark, and we are going to return. But we've had a few uh, sermons particularly related to the kingdom of God. This morning we turn to this passage of Scripture in the Gospel of St. Luke regarding the kingdom of God and gospel good works. And we look at the salvation of Zacchaeus' family and the parable of the Minas. Now reading and studying the Bible, we should be impacted by the arrangement and the context of Scripture as a part of the divine inspiration and providential preservation of the Word of God. Now I think you know that our arrangement of the Holy Bible is not strictly chronological in both Old Testament and New Testament. We we have uh, categorical groupings like, for example, the Gospels. And we even subdivide that into the synoptic Gospels of of Matthew, Mark, and Luke and then the Gospel of John. So we have these uh, categories in which we have arranged Scripture and I believe that that has been the good and wise providence of God. Uh, We don't say that that's part of necessarily the divine inspiration but we do recognize it as a good and wise providence. Also, there's an obvious example in the arrangement and the context that's found in the epistle writings that propose doctrines and then make ethical applications. And the book of Romans is a wonderful example of this. We have in the opening chapters, verses, or chapters 1 through uh, 3, and then picking up again in chapters 9 through 11, the moral law of God uh, as it is presented in terms of the continuing universal accountability for the covenant of works from Creator God, even the Apostle Paul concluding that all the world may stand guilty before God. No exclusion among Jews or Greeks. That's when he takes up that section again in chapters 9 through 11. And then we also have the Apostle Paul in the the book of Romans uh, presenting to us Christian salvation, explaining regeneration through the covenant of grace with a new gospel relationship to the moral law of God by Jesus Christ revealing to us Savior God. And Paul takes that up in chapters 7 and 8, and then again in chapters 12 through 15. And you may have noticed I left out chapter 13, because in chapter 13, the Apostle Paul gives himself to an application of the validity of God's creation ordinances in the world that includes Christian believers. And his example is civil government, The civil magistrate. But then he goes on to name the other nine commandments in reference to creation ordinances of God that even Christian believers have a relationship to in secular culture. But a a specific and different relationship in terms of the covenant of grace through Christ. But wait a minute, pastor, you left out chapters 4 through 6. No, I didn't leave it out. I want you to understand that this doctrinal distinction between the abiding... Authority of the covenant of works and the moral law of God, and the special grace of the covenant of grace and regeneration, and a changed relationship to the moral law of God through faith in Jesus Christ and our our being brought into the family of God and the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul, in chapters 4 through 6, deals with this doctrinal distinction in relating to us that this is not an endorsement of the sufficiency of natural law theology. If you're not careful in reading uh, chapters 1 through 5, you would say, oh, well, then the natural law of theology, Paul's saying even the Gentiles uh, pay homage to the law of God, the moral law of God, who don't have the written revelation of the law of God or at least don't acknowledge it as such. You would say, oh, well, then natural law theology must be sufficient to reveal to them the way of salvation. And Paul argues that it absolutely is not. There must be the preaching of the gospel. There must be the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There must be a supernatural regenerating power and work of the Holy Spirit of God for people to be saved. They cannot be saved by law works of their own. So that's what the Apostle Paul deals with in Romans, which we're going to return to also in dealing with the nature of the kingdom of God, particularly in relationship to the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Now, perhaps not as obvious is the same connection between arrangement and contents in our context, rather, in the gospel narratives. Uh, We tend to assume that the gospels are written strictly chronological. And that's a mistake that often overlooks in text keys to interpretation and meaning. And I think a good example this morning is in Luke chapter 19. That's why I put together the story of the salvation of Zacchaeus' family and the parable of the Minas. Sandwiched between chapter 18, what Jesus said about the rich and salvation in terms of the rich young ruler who came to him, and then following up in verses 28 and following with the triumphal entry. And so you see we have, if you'll remember, uh, the salvation of rich Zacchaeus' family and the parable of the minas. uh, A mina was a unit of money. These are arranged episodic in context along with chapter 18, Jesus' shocking warning about human impossibility of salvation. And if you read chapter 18 carefully, you'll see that Jesus says that's not just for the rich. Remember when the the rich young ruler turned away because he had many possessions? He was a a wealthy aristocrat. And he turned away in sadness, and Jesus said how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a, a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter heaven. And in our day, that seems to be applauded with with a, a jaded view of misunderstanding what Jesus said because do you know what the disciples said to Jesus? Who can be saved? Because we all feel our richness when Jesus says, let it all go. Let it all go. Who can be saved? With man it is impossible, but with God it is possible. Then we come to chapter 19. Zacchaeus. A despised chief tax collector. He was in the pyramid scheme of the day. He was chief tax collector over other tax collectors of the region. The guy was rich. He was rolling in the dough. And what does Jesus do? In the midst of all the scorn of those who wanted to reject Jesus as their king, Jesus visits Zacchaeus and his family with salvation. And then he turns to the parable of the minas. A parable about money. Do we see more than money in the parable of the minas? If you don't see more than money in the parable of the minas, then you are not looking with faith. And I'm going to tell you that this morning. What comes after the parable of the minas in Luke's account? The triumphal entry. Do you understand that the triumphal entry is a mockery? Jesus riding on the foal of a donkey, draped with clothing, Palm branches, people celebrating, wanting to make out that this is a great victory parade. It was a mockery. Because Jesus is not a king and his kingdom is not like this world. See, Jesus was not coming into Jerusalem like one of the Roman generals, conquering and to conquer. That would come by the eyes of faith It's revealed to us. But now Jesus comes in humility and mockery that we might understand the nature of his kingdom And he is a king, as he said to Pilate, is not of this world. How do we miss it? So we turn to chapter 19, verses 1 through 27, the kingdom of God and gospel good works, the salvation of Zacchaeus' family, and the parable of the minas. Now, reviewing commentaries and sermons on this passage proved generally disappointing, particularly because the arrangement and context were overlooked. The astounding connection between Jesus' salvation visited to Zacchaeus' family and the parable of the Minas is Jesus' expressed purpose to correct mistaken human expectations about the kingdom of God. How do I know that? Look at verse 11. Chapter 19, verse 11. All right, he said salvation has been visited to Zacchaeus' family. Now in verse 11. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Jesus tells us the purpose of this uh, parable and Luke sets it in this particular arrangement and context so that we might know that we're to be corrected about false human expectations Of the kingdom of God. And I really cannot underscore that. In our day. Again. False expectations. Human expectations. Worldly fleshly expectations. Of the kingdom of God. Can I say it any more loudly. Any more boldly. Can I get through to you. The kingdom of God. Is not like the kingdoms of this world. Jesus is not a king. Like the kings of this world. They will all fall to him so we look at verses 1 through 10 the parable I'm sorry the the uh, story of Zacchaeus uh, salvation that's visited to Zacchaeus family and I want you to to be impressed with this that gospel good works are grace generous you need to spend some time noodling on what does he mean by grace generous how would we explain grace generous from scripture that's what I would like for you to do that's what I challenge you to do. After this morning's message, you spend some time praying, going to Scripture, looking for scriptural uh, elaborations on what it means to be grace generous in the kingdom of God as the an outworking and demonstration of salvation. Remember, the context here comes in that context of uh, chapter 18 that we already mentioned that we often latch upon. Oh, uh. The rich trust in their riches. And that gives us, it seems, a a free pass in despising the rich. But no, what Jesus said struck home with the disciples. Because when Jesus says, let it all go, we all feel how rich we are in this world. And so in that context, we find Jesus visiting salvation to rich Zacchaeus' family. I cannot overstate this. He was the chief tax collector of the region. I already told you. He was the top of the pyramid scheme of the taxes and the customs and the revenues. You think Matthew, the one whom Jesus called Matthew the Levite, you think he was rich? No. Zacchaeus was beyond rich beyond him. <laughs> His status was someone who was powerfully rich. You probably have some idea of names you could name in uh, our culture and in our time of people who are the uber rich what would you think about God visiting his salvation to them would you rejoice in it would you say what a powerful manifestation of the glory of God or would you grumble and complain and feel that somehow you had been cheated if I was rich I would serve the Lord if I just won the lottery Lord if, I, if you will let me win the lottery I promise I'll tithe I'll be rich. I'll even go beyond the tithe. I'll give, Lord, if I can just be secure in my riches of what I want to hold on to. So Zacchaeus was uber rich. He was powerful. He was an austere and severe exacting man, collecting, taking what he did not deposit and reaping what he did not sow. How about that caricature? It comes up again in the parable of the miners with a false caricature about the Lord. How do we think about the Lord in that way? Do we think because we don't have the riches that we want that God is somehow stingy? Now, Zacchaeus' desire to see Jesus indicates the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit. Now, maybe a lot of people wanted to see Jesus, but I can confirm this because Jesus names him and seeks him and visits salvation to his family. So I feel assured in saying to you that Zacchaeus being moved to climb up in a sycamore fig tree to see Jesus indicates and shows us the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit of God. Remember that wonderful phrase that C.S. Lewis expresses about himself? God drugged me, screaming and kicking to himself. But here the effectual calling of God seems so wonderful and gentle. Zacchaeus, this powerfully rich, despised man, climbs up in a little tree because he's of a short stature and he wants to see Jesus. And we know the inside story because the Holy Spirit is calling him to salvation. Amen and amen. But the local people scorned Jesus because he would meet with this rich, hateful, powerful tax collector. Do you know that this reflects the fallen world's rejection of Jesus and the kingdom of God, the gospel, the kingdom of good news and salvation? For all kinds of people. Have we bought in to this conflict between the haves and the haves nots, between the rich and the poor, between the, the systems of human invention. Jesus said, You're going to always have the poor with you. Jesus could have also said, You're always going to have the rich with you. Jesus said, You're always going to have wars. People are always going to be fighting over their stuff because they're selfish and because they think their souls consist in what they possess. But oh no! What will happen if God requires your soul of you tonight? Then what will all your possessions do? And so, in the parable, Jesus talks about the people that rejected the heir, the appointed king, the chosen king. And here it's reflected among the local people, and it is reflected in our own day of those who reject Jesus and the gospel of his kingdom for a different kind of kingdom and a different kind of gospel. Now, Zacchaeus' public testimony in verse 8. Did you note that? Then Zacchaeus stood and said, you see, it was public. He was a public man and Jesus came to his house. The people knew he, were there. he was there. And probably like other occasions, people gathered around in the courtyard. And, and uh, so Zacchaeus stands up publicly. This is not just in the presence of Jesus or even Jesus and his disciples. It's in the presence of all who are around in that community who were rubbernecking and who were interested and who were wanting to to, uh, have that uh, excitement of famous people. So Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. What a joy. What a beauty. What a delight. What rejoicing in heaven and what rejoicing ought to be in our heart for all Zacchaeuses and their families in the world that Jesus saves them. And Zacchaeus reveals grace, generous gospel good works. That's what I want you to see here. It's repentance demonstrated in charity and reconciliation. He seeks from the reconciliation of God to extend that to others. God has reconciled me. He's given me peace with my soul to Himself. I want you to have that peace. I meet you in the name of the Lord Jesus. I I give freely uh, half of my wealth. I don't care. I I don't even think that has to be an exacting half. I don't think that that we're like the Pharisees having to go and measure out every bit of it. I think that what Zacchaeus is saying, this is in my heart. My heart is to give it freely. It's an expression of of, I'm giving it to the Lord joyfully. God loves a cheerful giver. God has worked His cheer and His joy and His release in Zacchaeus' soul and his salvation. And he says, if I've done anybody wrong, I, I give fourfold. I want you to understand something very important at this point, and that is, this is not guilt money. If you read it that way, you're denying the grace of God. This is not guilt money that is motivating Zacchaeus here. He goes above and beyond even any regulations of the Old Testament law. He does this grace generous out of a heart overflowing for love for Jesus. I hope you see that. I hope you understand that. And Paul gives us the best explanation of what's going on here from 2 Corinthians 9. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Have you heard that term cheerful explained before? Quite honestly, it means rolling with a belly laugh. Hilarity. Unable to contain yourself. Isn't that something? That you're unable to contain yourself over the joy of being able to give to the Lord and to his kingdom. And we're going to learn more in the a parable of the minas that it's not even in proportion. It's not even in proportion of the generosity and the goodness and the grace and the priceless, incalculable value of a soul more valuable than silver or gold. Now Jesus explains all of this by the covenant of grace covering Zacchaeus' family as the outworking of saving faith like Abraham. Look at verses 9 and 10. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. Because he also is a son of Abraham, one who is of the faith of Abraham. For the son of man, Jesus' title for himself as the Savior, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus is seeking and saving Zacchaeus and his family by his rich covenant of grace. And there are grace, generous good works that flow out of Zacchaeus and his family because salvation visited that family. It should be a cause for great rejoicing. It should cause us to rejoice. I I hope your heart is leaping this morning to say, Oh, wonderful, what Jesus has done. How many Zacchaeuses are there? Are there Zacchaeus in our world? Are there Zacchaeus in our community that we may not even know about? Thanks be to God that He visits them with His salvation. God doesn't need our money. Whether it's little or much, do we give it grace generous? And not just our money, by the way. More importantly, what Scripture goes to is our heart. For where your heart is, that's where your treasure will be. Is your heart set on your possessions? Or is your heart set on the kingdom of God and salvation? Now following the story of Zacchaeus' salvation, Luke arranges Jesus' parable of the miners. I told you it's a unit of money. It was valued as a common day's pay or wage for about 100 days. Three months or about 100 days. And we have that parable given to us in this context, arranged here by Luke, guided by the Holy Spirit. It's not necessarily chronological, but these scripture accounts are gospel-related. That's what I want to press upon you this morning. Sorry. These scripture accounts, the the, the salvation of Zacchaeus' family and the parable of the minas arranged by St. Luke, by the Holy Spirit directing him, are gospel-related. So we have verses 1 through 27, which I've already read for you this morning, the parable of the minas. I'd like for you to go back and read it this afternoon uh, based on the things that I've told you. Uh, if you have the study notes that I've given, I always say those are like uh, a to-go box, some, some, something you can take with you so that you can chew on <laughs> later. Uh So we come to this astounding connection between Jesus' salvation visited to Zacchaeus' family and the parable of the minas. This is Jesus' expressed purpose to correct mistaken human expectations about the kingdom of God in verse 11. Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So Jesus' expressed purpose is to Challenge their false expectations about the kingdom of God and its immediacy in human terms, in earthly terms, and to relate it to the salvation terms that he visited to Zacchaeus and his family. The kingdom of God. Salvation unto our God who saves us and keeps us, changes our hearts. Out of our hearts Poor generosity of grace. Whether we have little or much, we give it with hilarity with cheerfulness we can't contain ourselves at the joy of being able to give for the lord now some of the corrections or let me back up and say another thing here Uh, so many of the commentaries wanted to relate this parable to the extra biblical account of herod's sons currying roman favor for their father's kingdom has nothing to do with this it may have been current Jesus is not telling a parable about a human kingdom. And so whatever relationship there might have been in terms of that historical event, there were many who were currying favor with the Roman officials to try to gain power and lands. And we don't need extra biblical history to interpret the scriptures for us. If there was some connection there, so be it. But what Jesus is telling us about is, no, you need to understand what the real kingdom of God is. You need to understand what the true kingdom of God is. Away with these false immediate expectations that are human-oriented and earthbound about the kingdom of God. I just saved Zacchaeus and his family. One of the richest, uber-powerful men in the region hated and despised. And yet, I visited him with the joy of salvation. Is your heart joyful about that gift? of salvation to Zacchaeus and his family? That's the question. So some of the corrections that Jesus gives by this parable challenge... Listen to this. Some of the corrections that Jesus gives about this parable of the kingdom of God challenge money-based interpretations for social agendas of all kinds. I told you, if you read this parable of the minas and you can only think about money... You're not reading it in faith. You're reading it in the flesh. This parable is not about money. This parable is about the kingdom of God. Rightly to be understood. Not about these social agendas of all kinds with human ideology. Not about redistribution of wealth and power. Oh, Zacchaeus was a wealthy and powerful man. Uh, He was an austere man. He gathered where he did not sow and he took what was not really his. So what Jesus is telling us here is that you got to save yourself by redistributing your wealth and giving up your power. Wrong! That's nothing about this parable. It's about the change of heart. We're not even told that Zacchaeus left his office as tax collector. Think about that. Maybe he stayed in his office. And maybe he became a prime example of the, the goodness of God from a man who's in secular office somewhere. Perhaps that happened. I don't know. But what I do know is that this parable is not about redistribution of wealth and power. It's not about money. I can also tell you that this parable is not about free market economics with investment ventures of risk and rewards or losses. This parable is not about money or banking or investment. This parable, I have it on good authority, Jesus Christ, is about the kingdom of God and correcting faults expectations and those expectations that noodle their way in to our dissatisfaction with life in this world but because we think money will fix everything yeah i'm saying that to you i'm challenging you i'm challenging every one of you who hear this the risk that we have to our faith that we think money and wealth will satisfy everything Oh, I would be a better Christian if I were a rich Christian. You know what you're saying? God's not fair. You're saying, Heavenly Father's stingy. I know more than my Heavenly Father does. You know what? If you were more wealthy, you would probably be an idolater. Think about that. Hmm. I better go back to the text. I might get in trouble if I keep going down this way. (laughs) All right, so Jesus is correcting these false views about the kingdom of God in his day and in our day. The kingdom of God is not like this world's systems. Verse 12, Jesus, through the ascension into heaven, is likened to the nobleman who went into a far place to receive his kingdom. This parable is about Jesus as our king. Verse 13, Christian believers are symbolized by ten servants. The biblical use of the number ten symbolizes collective divine purpose. So the ten servants represent the church collectively as individuals serving Christ. I'll give you an example of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments summarize the law of God. We divide them often into two tables. The first four and the latter six. Our duty to God, our duty to our our neighbor. But in so doing, the Scriptures always, in recognizing the individual commandments, keep them collectively. And Paul goes on to say, if we fail in one, we are guilty of all. Because... The symbol 10 is used to represent collective divine purpose individually um, applied. And then verse 14, the rejection of the chosen heir to be king is a major messianic theme throughout scripture, also being attested in the immediate context when the people were sour and scornful because Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house. Now in this parable, they show up as following along and saying, we will not have you to be our king. We will not have this man to be our king. We don't want his king, and we don't want his kingdom. Yeah, that's the rejection of the gospel. Do you get it? The world is hostile against Christ and his gospel. The world doesn't want Jesus' as king. It doesn't want Jesus' kingdom. That's important to understand what Jesus is saying here. Verse 15, the promised return of the king in power parallels the promised return of Jesus at the consummation of his kingdom. That astounding text in 1 Corinthians 15, when he will deliver up the kingdom to his father. Oh, it's a powerful, wonderful text. Over in Hebrews, we're told that we don't see yet everything under Jesus' authority. But it will happen. It will happen God's way. There are many preoccupations with different eschatological schemes as to how that works out. I think we need to keep the focus of the gospel We need to keep that primary. And we need to hope and pray and believe. And we need to say with the Spirit as taught by the apostles and the church historically, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Jesus is coming in His time and in His way. And beloved, we had a memorial this morning to remember one of our dear sisters who was called to Jesus before Jesus has come. I may be called to Jesus before Jesus comes. You may be called to Jesus before He comes. But please understand, Jesus will come again. In verses 16 through 19, the king as Lord commends and rewards his profitable servants out of proportion (laughs) to their monetary worth. A repeated gospel of grace theme. Rewarded by God out of proportion. Can you put a value on your soul salvation? Would you trade your soul salvation for gold and silver, for the wealth of the world? Would you trade your soul salvation? Oh, please, no. I told you that the mina represented about a 100 days of uh, day wages. Let's estimate that around five thousand uh, dollars. three months. I, you know, between six and 10,000 dollars. But here's the point. <laughs> the servant who had invested and worked for his Lord in such a way that he had an abundance, he brought 10 more minas. You know, he, he made like $60,000 to give his Lord the price of a truck. Not that I've been looking at truck prices, but the price of a truck. And what does the Lord tell him? Have 10 cities. Choose your pick. Hey, you can have Atlanta. Atlanta. You can have Boston. You can have Miami. You can have, what are the richest cities? You can pick those cities. Pick any cities you want. You can have 10 cities. What? For the price of a truck? I get 10 wealthy cities? Now, if you're just thinking about wealth, you miss the point. What is the point here? That faith-based love for Christ and His kingdom is out of proportion In terms of God's goodness to us, there is no amount of wealth in the world that is worth your eternal soul. How can you doubt the goodness of God? How can you doubt the gospel of God? How can you doubt the kingdom of God that is a kingdom of righteousness and of joy and of visiting salvation to those who don't deserve it? What do you think you deserve? See, it's not about deserving. It's about generosity. God's generosity. It's all out of proportion. I'm so poor to try to say it. It's all out of proportion. It's not about deserving. It's about grace and generosity and love that is inestimable in its eternal value. Your soul's salvation for all eternity Hmm. well in verses 16 through 19 uh, oh I just just talked about that let's look at verses 20 through 26 the king as lord reprimands the unprofitable servant this is often misunderstood I want you to listen to this carefully the king as lord reprimands the unprofitable servant by official censor because of his hiding in fear over a dreaded caricature he falsely caricatures his Lord. And the Lord, through this, warns us of two of the most corruptible uh, threats to our Christian life of faith that make us unprofitable, and that's worldly doubt. Self-centered suspicions, being double-minded, questioning God, thinking God's out to get you or thinking God doesn't love you because he doesn't give you wealth and doesn't give you riches and doesn't make you an important, powerful person in the world. And quite honestly, we couch that in terms of, well, I don't want to be as rich as. I just wish I could be, and usually we say, free of worry. I wish I didn't have any money worries. I wish I didn't have any troubles. Uh, Money money would answer all my needs. And repeatedly in Scripture, the Bible says, no, it won't. It will not. The false gospel out there of getting more wealth means you're uh, approved by God. No, it doesn't. There are many warnings that come from Scripture about wealth being a threat to our life of faith. Trusting in riches and not trusting in the goodness and the love and the promises of God. Repeatedly in Scripture, we're told that the testings and the tryings of our faith are God's way of purifying our faith. They're gifts from God. Yes, I said it. The trying of our faith is a gift from God. You don't like it and I don't like it in the flesh. But we're to get out of the flesh and be in the Spirit. That's the point. Get out of the flesh. Get your mind out of the flesh. The mind of the flesh is enmity with God. It's at war with Him. Stop listening to those who are telling you false tales that riches will make you secure and happy. They will not. So, there's the danger of worldly doubt. I'm not talking about self-examination and reviewing ourselves and saying, Lord, my faith needs to be stronger. Lord, please forgive my sin. Lord, build my faith. Not self-examination, but worldly doubt of self-centered suspicion and being double-minded that James and Other passages of Scripture warn us about an unholy fear. I cannot emphasize this enough. When we falsely caricature God as mean, well, God could do it. God could relieve my suffering. God could give me uh, more money. God could give me an easier life. God's just mean. Are you ashamed of the way that I'm characterizing that? I'm ashamed of the way you caricature God, a false caricature of God, that he's mean and not a loving heavenly father. And you should be ashamed of yourself as well. So this is what is happening with the unprofitable servant. And then at the end of the parable, I want you to see this in verse 27, the Lord's order is king to execute those who practice treason. This also sets a difference between them... The treasonous and the unprofitable servant, because a lot of commentators, a lot of commentators want to say the unprofitable servant was unsaved. I, I don't see that. I see him as being dealt with, and I'm going to read a scripture in a moment that I think answers that. And there is a difference set between the unprofitable servant and the treasonous. And so the unprofitable servant is scripturally set as different from the treasonous ones. And this will be revealed at the final resurrection and judgment. And this is what the Apostle Paul says that I think clarifies this in 1 Corinthians 3. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Speaking of the kingdom of God. Speaking of the church and the believers. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. Let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel celebrates. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God, the church, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day, what day? The day. The day of the Lord's coming, the day of judgment. The day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire And the fire will test each one's work. He's talking about believers here within the church. Of what sort it is. If anyone's work which is built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. The unprofitable servant of the parable. Yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? Not some human built temple. That's over and done with, never to be redone. You are God's temple, the living temple of living worshipers, and that the spirit dwells with you. That's the kingdom of God. The spirit of the t- kingdom of God is within you, Jesus said. And so I want you to hear this. I want to elaborate. I know I've gone long, but I want you to hear this in conclusion this morning. Gospel, good works are grace generous and faith-based. They're not identified by social ideologies of worldly systems. Gospel good works are grace-generous and faith-based. Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him who He sent. In the famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus restates the moral law of God in gospel terms of the covenant of grace. The Apostle Paul proposes the doctrine of good works as ordained and identified by God for the Christian believer through the covenant of grace by a transformed relationship to the moral law of God. This is the foundation of the church, the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the primary good work, like the primary emphasis of the moral law, is the public worship of the triune God through the mediation of King Jesus and the ethical indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way that we can worship God rightly. That's the best of all the good works from which other good works come that God has ordained, that we worship Him in spirit and in truth, confessing and declaring and proclaiming the good news of His salvation through His Son, our King Jesus Christ, in whom is the only possibility of salvation. And out of this salvation flows gospel good works that are grace-generous and faith-based, chiefly believing in the sufficiency of the gospel The salvation of human souls is of eternal, inestimable value over any earthly wealth, treasure, or riches. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? The gospel is our treasure in Jesus Christ. No other foundation. And where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. Are concluding him a hymn of.